Hey, Blockheads. So this is the last week of the Akatacon 2016 Kickstarter. And me and my pal Neil here, we are here to tell you that if you have not already backed them, you should definitely go and you should back them at once. It is an awesome convention. And it if you are in the Dayton, Ohio area or anywhere that you want to get to, the Dayton, Ohio area from November 11th through 13th of 2016. They will be having a, their second convention with a ton of amazing guests. Not to mention John Wick, Rich Baker, Keith Baker. There might be someone who bakes things just in general. I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. And we're going to be there as well. So if you want to come out and play some games with us, hang out with us, just talk to us. This is awesome. We would love to sit down with some of you listeners and just talk about D&D together. To do that, all you got to do is you got to go on to Kickstarter and you have to search a Catacon 2016 leveling up. Get yourself a badge. Be there. And hey, if you're not able to be there and you want to support them, help this con to keep going. It is a really amazing special con. Support your gaming community. Help a Catacon 2016 level up. Thanks, Blockheads. And now, here's the show. Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Mitch. And I'm Dungeon Master Chris. And we're back today with our fifth Divine Spotlight series episode. Crazy, Chris. Five down already. That is absolutely crazy. Yeah, yeah. that's a lot of gods that we have covered. And today, we are going to be covering some amazing gods. We're going to be covering the gods Farlang which is one of my favorite Greyhawk deities, Glitter Gold, which, which is one of my favorite there deities you now. Go. <laughs> and then my one of my custom gods from Atos, Cher Arye, which I've mentioned a few times and said, we'll get to him in a future episode. Today is the future episode that we'll be talking about Cher Arye in. Perfect. So uh, we're excited to talk about these gods. But before we do, Chris, we have some five-star reviews. So let's get started on those five-star reviews. Our first one comes from Hobo Casual. He <laughs> writes, DM Therapy, five stars. Love this podcast. These guys are doing a beautiful thing, and with this tool at our disposal, we can combat the PC hive mind. The wealth of ideas these guys shotgun at you is everything you need to come up with fully fleshed out worlds and scenarios that can stand up to the crawling chaos that are PCs, no matter what your play style is. These guys have been the wind under my wings as I have started building my own homebrew world with a lot of inspiration from the episode about horror and survival gaming. I could keep flapping my gums, but you should be <laughs> listening to this podcast by now. Go forth and nat 20. Nice. So thank you very much, Hobo Casual. Thank you for your DM therapy review. All of our reviews are always so amazing. I love them all. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I love Casual. our listeners. Our next one comes from GM Suron, and GM Suron says, The best RPG podcast I've found. Five stars. I have downloaded every episode onto my phone and am on my second playthrough of the entire series. That's one Dang. of the crazy things that always amazes me and just... Uh, lifts me up when I hear those kind of things. Uh, this is a great resource for DMs new to the game and veterans looking for fresh ideas. 
I've enjoyed the ideas from DM Mitch and DM Chris so much that I became a Patreon member to the podcast. My first such donation. Oh, thank you. I look forward to hearing a lot more from these guys. If I had any other suggestion, it would be to put out more episodes. But alas, real life takes precedent. Thank that you is so very much, true. GM Suron. <laughs> that being said, thank you for being a Patreon member. And for our Patreon members and for the fans out there who are supporting us with iTunes reviews and sharing us on Twitter and all that stuff, I just want to say thank you guys. And as far as more episodes, we will be continuing on with our episode schedule. But... In the next coming months, we will have some pretty amazing announcements to be made, won't we, Chris? Yes, we will. That we will. And it's all thanks to you, the listeners. But as Hobo Casual said, we could keep flapping our gums. We could keep flapping our gums. (laughs) (laughs) But we need to get into the meat. So let's go there now. (laughs) I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? So like we said, today for the meat, we are talking about some pretty awesome gods. I think we've both come to have a new love for many of these gods. You, Mitch, loving Farlang, probably fell more in love with Farlang as you were reading through (laughs) the material that we did for this episode. Yeah, this wasn't my first time reading through it, but it definitely allowed me to soak in more as I studied it for this episode. And uh, I love him so much. It's totally different doing it for an episode than for Mm -hmm. like a homebrew world. It just helps you solidify it that much more. And so now we are going to regurgitate in a way through our flapping gums the (laughs) stuff that we have learned about Farlang. So Gary Gygax was the man, the myth, the legend that created Farlang for the world of Greyhawk, one of my favorite worlds. Unfortunately, I've never played there, just read a lot of books there. It's one of my favorites. In 1982, and he has been a part of the Pantheon of Gods since first edition through the present day. His titles are The Dweller on the Horizon, and in my world of Atos, he is well known as the Far Wanderer. He comes from from the home plane of Oreth, but he actually spends most of his time on the material plane with humans and gnomes and all of these other creatures in the world. His power level is intermediate. His alignment is neutral. His portfolio includes horizons, distance, travel, and roads. The domains that he aligns with are balance, celerity, luck, portal, protection, travel, and weather. And as far as superiors, he has none. Nobody control where he travels. So to describe Farlang, he appears as an elderly man. His skin is wrinkled and weathered, but his green eyes sparkle with life. He wears unremarkable travel-stained clothing of leather and unbleached linen. He carries a quarterstaff and the Orith disc, a magical version of his holy symbol, which it basically is this, this disc with a line in the middle and then a circle above it signifying the horizon which is pretty cool i like that yeah i like it a lot it's very simple which is part of the reason i love farlang is there's a simplicity to him but like in simplicity it's just remarkable and it's i don't know it's really cool i like him a lot well there's so much depth in the simplicity. yeah we'll get to a lot of that later but what's really cool about him too is he can summon earth elementals to serve Mm -hmm. him and he cannot be harmed by earth spells and cannot be surprised when on the prime material plane which is really interesting it kind of goes along 
along with his, I've traveled a lot. Yeah. I've seen everything. Nothing can really surprise me while I'm here. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think of it being like, you know, he is at home when his feet are on solid ground. He just has this relationship to the earth itself. I love that. Yeah. So as far as relationships, Farlang is a lover of Atroa, goddess of the east wind, which makes sense. He is allied with a lot of gods, most notably I see being Celestian and Oladamara. And then he is also, to take it even deeper, he is the brother of Celestian, who is the god of like, he, he wanders the cosmos and the stars and space And it is said that his brother Celestian, who is traveling the cosmos, is attempting to spread the knowledge of Farlang to other planes as well. So I really like that idea of Celestian and Farlang being brothers. In my world, they always say that Celestian is the one who decided to leave the world and travel the many other worlds and see everything that the universe has to offer. And Farlang is the traveler who stays on the Earth and travels the Earth just really loves that plane. You know, as we move into talking about his realms and things like that, one thing that I really like about him is he's not like this big demanding god yeah absolutely not. when he's on the material plane he's like i am 500 feet tall worship me or you'll be smited he just travels the material plane in person form like he's just a normal guy he's always willing to stop and relate with people he's willing to chat with them but the key thing is not at great length he believes the road calls to him and he must continue wandering on and so i imagine like if he stops to talk with people it's like no no keep walking with me like you can talk as long as you can walk and we'll (laughs) like have a good long conversation (laughs) yeah talk and walk he occasionally travels to the elemental plane of earth but seldomly he ever enters into the elemental plane of air and i wonder if that's because he can't walk Mm -hmm. on the plane (laughs) of air like i wonder if that's why he doesn't go there but he has the ability to travel to any inner plane but like we said he feels the call of the material plane more than anything and he seldom goes to those inner planes one thing that's interesting about his followers that have died off their souls remain on the material plane as well often lingering near crossroads so i like that idea of even in death they are still wandering the material plane if they were in life dedicated to farlang another thing that is really interesting specifically with greyhawk is there is this legendary location that few even among the faithful have heard of and it's called the journey's end it exists according to myth in the center of the the largest desert in the world, a tiny hidden oasis where temperatures are not as uncomfortable as elsewhere in that region. A copse of magical Orpheus trees enhance the powers of recuperation among those who rest beneath them. Their round fist-sized fruits each function as a day-long's ration. The beautiful waterfall there heals wounds and cures diseases. And probably the most, if this isn't already to you just sounding like like, that sounds like an amazing place. And this is a place in Greyhawk, but what is your world's version of the journey's end? But the most amazing part of it is that those who swim in the crystalline pond will find that Farlang himself will answer up to five simple questions that they may ask him there. So I really like that idea of this oasis in this desert. And it speaks to who Farlang is because it is a rest that would take a long, long, difficult and probably really dangerous journey to be able to get there and that rest is well deserved
deserved. And those answers to those questions are well deserved if you're able to one, find it and two, even get there. Yeah, it's almost like a, a reward for making it that yes, far. Exactly. The fact that he gets to answer these questions for you. He sees you as worthy enough to enter the pool and to have these questions yeah. answered for you. I think that's really, really cool. Farlang, he insists that everyone travel in order to discover and learn new things. So it goes right along with that crystalline pond. Like they're traveling, trying to figure out new things. They get there, they learn all these new things from them. Uh, and he urges people to look to the horizon for inspiration. It's almost that like, who knows what's over the horizon? Yeah. Hey, you want to go find out? Let's go find out. That'd be a good thing to do in, in Farlang's mind. Yeah, I like that he also teaches through short anecdotes, many of which feature a wise old man traveling with a foolish young man. <laughs> there are many yeah. more than 100 stories that involve these two of them crossing a river or a bridge or whatever it is, a valley for all those different examples. And I love that idea of the stories and the lessons being told through little stories of the wise old man and the foolish young man. And I imagine if you meet a Farlang worshiper along the road and you tell them about the quest that you're on or a problem that you're having, they're going to have a little antidote for you. And they're just going to say, well, that reminds me of the story of the wise old man and the foolish young man as they traveled to the highest peak of the highest mountain. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's great. I love it. Well, and the, the wise old man kind of reminds me of like Farlang's probably trying to get at himself yeah. there <laughs> with that image of the old man. Cause that's what he looks like. And so I wonder if many of the anecdotes are like, stories mm -hmm. from people that had walked alongside him yeah. and, and had heard some of these teachings and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's not something that is described in the lore, but I feel like that could be your own twist on it, right? That the wise old man is supposed to symbolize Farlang himself, and maybe the foolish young man is supposed to symbolize you as his follower, and like it's the lessons that you learn as yeah. you try and become more like the wise old man. I like that a lot. Yeah, and Farlang, he is the patron to all those who travel long distances, whether on the surface or in the depths of the Underdark, because who knows how big the Underdark <laughs> is, you know? His symbol is often seen in inns and stables, very common because they are a place of travel. His followers include adventurers, merchants, and travelers of all sorts. The Guardians of the Road are fanatical worshippers of Farlang who give away all their belongings and take to traveling full time. They also seek to protect the secret of the journey's end, so they know about the journey's end and they are not going to be telling anyone. I wonder if they're the only ones who know about it. This would be perfect yeah. for a monk. Honestly, when I think of Farlang, I don't normally think of monks but that giving away all their belongings very much works into the old style of playing monks with they can't have belongings to themselves, but you could have a monk of Farlang who just gives away all their possessions and all they want to do is travel and travel and travel. Yeah. What I think is really cool is when you move past the worshipers, you get to like the true worshipers of Farlang, mm -hmm. the clergy and the clerics of the dweller of the horizon. They travel to exotic lands. They do things like bless caravans. They scout for armies, which I had never thought about doing that with priests of Farlang, having them be scouts for armies, and they record their experiences so that others may learn from them. They act as translators and diplomats, and they help in the constructions of roads, bridges, and what's really interesting, they help come up with better shoes for people so that they can <laughs> travel longer distances, which is pretty cool. They usually wear simple clothing of brown and faded greens, and they wander frequently and seldom it is that one would encounter the same group of priests ministering at the same shrine. Farlang's favored weapon is his quarterstaff. Makes sense. 
Because the road is the best teacher, initiates are trained in the way of Farlang by being taken on long trips. They are dismissed if they ask when the journey will be over. So Farlang worshippers do not deal well with the kids who are in the backseat going, are we (laughs) there yet? (laughs) Like, you can't be a follower of Farlang, dang it. (laughs) The priest that's in the front taps his wife on the shoulder and says, just open the back slider. They'll just get out. Hit the object button to the cart. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh gosh yeah it must be really hard being kids for like farlang worshippers <laughs> there's this rule for people that are parents raising their kids under farlang that's like all right kids you get one time <laughs> to say are we there yet because we don't want to be complete jerks and throw you out you because get one time and anything after that displacer beast might come out of the woods and murder you <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> right oh gosh yeah so they they're dismissed if they ask when the journey will be over because to the faithful of farlang the journey never really ends and that's the point that the these parents are trying to teach their dang kids. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and the, the urban priests, the ones that find themselves in bigger cities, they wear brown robes and they maintain small chapels in cities and towns. Pastoral priests, they wear green and spend all of their time wandering. So that's really interesting. I wonder how you would make urban priests a thing for Farling. Do they just continually walk around the city or how does how does that work? Maybe that maybe that's it. Maybe it's um that they live in a city that is, I mean, this is a fantasy world we're talking about that's big enough that they can spend their whole entire lives trying to travel the entire city and finding different nooks and crannies throughout the city or maybe it's an urban priest is a priest who goes from city to city to city and that's their specific journey that they're on whereas the pastoral ones are the ones who maybe they go and they basically are trying to find like things in the wilderness and everything yeah so farling doesn't have many large temples but wayside shrines to him are common at major crossroads and port cities, shrines to Farlang will provide fast horses and sturdy sailing ships. Chris, we had in the Riders of Shemesh, you guys found quite a few shrines and I think only one church to Farlang and the church was like this little hut in the middle of a uh, shepherding town. And Chris, if you remember when we met the priest who worked there, it was always like a different person each day because priests of Farlang would be traveling in and out. And sometimes there weren't... There wasn't even a priest there because there was no priest traveling into this town. So that was kind of the way that I took it for my world is there would be churches, but it would always have a a revolving door of the clergy that was coming in and out because they're not staying in one place. So each and every clergy has like their duty that when they're in a city, they will take over for as long as they're resting there being a priest in that temple, in that little church. And then do you remember the, the little shrines that were always on the road and they were just basically stones piled up and they'd have the little symbol to Farlang on them. That's yes. that's what I love about Farlang is I've really grasped onto the simple nature of him and that he's just the every man's god, the deity. And so like travelers will just take rocks and like that is their way to create a shrine to him. I love that idea so much. Yeah. And some of those people might not even know that they've met Farlang. Yeah. As they're like walking by, like you may be looking at the shrine and say, oh, that's cool. I found another. Like maybe there's almost a game in your world, like geocaching, like <laughs> find the next altar right? of Farlang or something like that. It'd be really interesting. No, but that would be, it's funny, but that would absolutely be a a way that Farlang worshippers would, would worship him is they'd set these shrines
grinds in hard to find places or hard to travel to places so that if you get there, maybe that's like your your right of passage of I finish this quest as you take a stone from the ground, you carve onto it that symbol of Farling and you add it to the shrine and that's kind of your... Yeah, you like carve your name in there or something to it too, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of your symbol of like, I made it, I made it to this spot. I am one of the people who have worshipped Farling and have traveled here. I like that idea a lot. I love it. Yeah. You know, we're talking about people continually seeming to be like they're traveling and one of the cool rituals about Farlang is that there's a thing called the eternal pilgrimage that people will go on. And so a lot of these people, they spend an entire year preparing themselves for this eternal pilgrimage by walking up to at least eight hours a day. And so the eternal pilgrimage has no set time limit. There's no direction. There's no length for it. It lasts as long as the pilgrim feels is appropriate. And so the pilgrim must only travel by walking and may not visit the same location more than once a day. So they also offer their company to lonely travelers and they always share their fires with strangers, which I think is really, really cool. Those those bandits who would take advantage of the pilgrim's friendly reputation uh, to pose as one of them usually vanish and only bloodstained robes hanging from nooses by the side of the road remain as evidence of the vengeance of the faithful. That's really interesting. His rituals, apart from the eternal pilgrimage, are short and to the point. His services are usually held outdoors, preferably beneath a sunny sky with the horizon in view. The faithful of Farling rely on other deities to bless their births, marriages, and dead because that's just not something that Farlang concerns himself with. Right. Another thing that's really interesting about Farlang, for as simple as he is, there's a lot of stinking relics that belong to him. And so one of them is the boots of the unending journey. Journey, and they are black boots that leave no footprints where they walk. And it is said that Farlang grants them once per century to a traveler he finds worthy. And then he grants an ordinary cobbler the ability to make a new pair. I love that. That's really well, cool. Once again, it's the he is the everyman's god. He's not got his nose in the air and he's snooty. He embraces the commoners. I love that. Yeah. Another relic is called the milestone and it functions as a compass. So Chris, we joked about Rocky talkies, like walkie talkie rocks, yeah, right, but this is like right. a compass that is a stone and it casts a find the path spell at will. And I love that. Just the stone that can function as a compass. So what happens if you don't know where you're going? Does it find a path for you? If you're going on the eternal journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Uh, the next one is the Orth disc. It's six inches in diameter and is made of many kinds of wood and inlaid with turquoise and jade with a bright amber gemstone set in the middle. By concentrating on this artifact, Farlang can produce a tiny image of any location on the prime material plane. He can teleport to this place after viewing it for a round. And then the disc can also shoot burning golden rays, which can illuminate blind or burn people. <laughs> And then there is the Rapier of Unerring Direction, which originally was a gift to Farlang from his buddy, Oladamara, but has since been copied several times by Farlang's priests. It is said that this sword can pierce hidden, incorporeal, displaced, or fast teleporting creatures. So, I mean, this is a fantastic weapon when things like ghosts are coming after you. Yeah, or things that are just extremely yeah. quick that would otherwise be really hard to hit. I wonder if it kind of has a like little bit of a pull that it points to something that isn't yeah. there, you know, like or not I that is there, but you can't normally see, and it kind of guides you, like where Frodo's sword glows blue, yeah. like you, this one just kind of tugs you in a direction when there's something that's 
incorporeal around you or can fast teleport. Like you have to just hold it out and just not try, but you just let the sword do the work and you just feel your hand moving. So yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. The next one is the Rod of Leagues, and it is a walking stick that can produce expeditious retreat and teleport effects. And when used together with the Milestone, it can direct a traveler to the secret garden of nice. Farlang which is the journeys. I end. love it. So that's cool. Even secret or not secret that relics can build upon mm-hmm. each other and create this really cool thing. Cause most times you think of magic items as just that one thing. It does its one thing and that's it. But this is really cool. You combine two of them and they do some pretty cool things. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Cause the milestone in itself, it's really cool, but it's not that powerful. But then if you have the rod of leagues and the milestone finding the journeys end, like that is a really, really cool thing to have. And the farling worship, would be seeking after both of these things so he could oh, find yeah. the journeys in without end. And then finally, there are the shoes of Farlang, which are thick-soled shoes that never wear out. Those who walk in them will never tire from ordinary walking. That's pretty cool. And yeah, very Farlang. Cool. <laughs> yep. Those of neutral or neutral good alignment who wear them gain a variety of additional benefits, including immunity to being tripped, slipping, falling into a pit, or tiring from climbing hills. Those who worship Farlane cannot become lost or surprised and can use the shoes to climb even vertical surfaces. So once again, Chris, it's that idea of like this by itself, they're pretty cool shoes because they will not ever wear out and you're never going to be tired of walking. But then if you are the alignments that Farlane aligns with, they're even better. You're not going to be slipping or falling into a pit or tiring from climbing hills. But then if you on top of that are worshiping Farlane, you can't be lost, surprised, all that stuff. And it's just like for the true worshiper of Farlang, these shoes are pretty freaking amazing. So we have some adventure hooks as we do with all gods that we do on Divine Spotlight series. And so the adventure hooks that we have for Farlang are as follows. First, I thought it'd be really awesome to have a side quest of great importance to the journey's end. I think that you could fit this into a lot of campaigns where if you are on a journey or you're going to fight this really big bad whatever it is that your campaign has as the end goal maybe there's something that it's just like man if only we knew the answer to this question we could really gain an upper hand in the situation for the end of this campaign and a really, really important side quest that would, it may be called a side quest, but it would have great importance to the end of that campaign is if you were to have a member of your party say that they're a Farlang worshiper and they want to go and find the journey's end. That means if you're in playing in the world of Greyhawk, that fits in really well. But if you've created your own world, create your own version of the journey's end and that yeah. place, that oasis where Farlang himself will answer your questions. And I just see that being a really cool side quest to be able to go and ask this god Farlang. We have a really important question about the end of our journey. We want to know this. And that could lead to some really cool twists and that really cool reveals for whatever your story is that you're playing in. Or he might just say, that is a question of the foolish young man. The young wise man would want to walk the journey and find it himself. Maybe Farlang is like Gandalf and he speaks in riddles. I feel like that would be yeah, very right. appropriate for him, yeah. yeah. Yeah, or it's like in the midst of that, you're also trying to find the rod of leagues and the milestone in order to get there yeah that's a side quest to the side quest yeah 
yeah, maybe you're not somebody who can just find the journey's end. Like they don't have enough knowledge about it, but they have the knowledge to find the rod of leagues and the milestone by asking around. You know, that could be a really interesting thing too. One of the side quests that I would find particularly fun to either do or to have some of my players do would, you know, we talked about all of these random sayings or these prayers that people talk about because most of them deal with the young follower and the old man who's giving wisdom and usually crossing over a river. But how cool would it be if one of your party members started writing a whole bunch of those or on their journeys ran into people who told them these sayings and they wrote them down into almost like a book of common prayer or something like that or a book of wisdom of Farlang or something like that that your players could have at the end and say, that was a pretty cool thing that we put together. We we put together a book that was full of as many sayings as we could find that dealt with Farlang and what he was trying to teach us. I think that would be really fun to have a player or myself to do. Yeah, I I was just thinking like, I would really like to do that. Maybe Chris, if Farling is in your world, maybe that's something that one of my characters would like to do in the future. But it almost sounded like you were thinking about the same thing for my world. So (laughs) (laughs) we could both create the lore of our own worlds and the the anecdotes that Farling goes along with. I like that idea a lot, though. And anytime you're able to say, hey, to a player, if you're doing this, you are adding on to the lore of my world. I feel like for myself, that always excites me and to be able to co-build a world together. And I love it. Yeah, it's true. Our last adventure hook that we have is a way to start maybe even just a campaign, have it be the campaign itself. But if you wanted to, you could have the PCs all be worshipers of Farlang and together they are going on the eternal pilgrimage. And if you remember us talking about the eternal pilgrimage is a journey that the end is determined by the one going on that pilgrimage. So they decide when it is that the journey ends. I really like this idea Because if you have a group of adventurers who are all about traveling and seeing new places and they worship Farlang and they decide when the journey ends, it's kind of an interesting take on DMing and doing a sandbox-like campaign because I feel like then you give the PCs and you say, hey guys, this campaign will end when you guys decide that the story is over. And so you as the DM can look and you can create different points in the story where it's like, you're like, wow, this would be a good ending moment right here. And you build up how they reach this point, this high mountain, and it is this majestic feeling and everything. And you throw it out there in their minds to be like, is this the end? But then they decide to keep Mm -hmm. going. And then they might decide that it's a whole different point in the story where they're like, this is the end. This is the point that I want to end my story right here. We want to end our story right here. And I really like that idea. It'd be a very interesting way to DM a campaign by giving your players the determining factor of when does the story end? Yeah, because the PCs, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're just people that walk around with mm-hmm. walking sticks. Like they could be adventurers or they could be, you know, really anybody yeah. that's just into being on this eternal pilgrimage. I mean, obviously they've gone through the walking for eight hours every day, you know, for a year leading up. But yeah, you could totally just have them be random adventurers that come together who all worship Farlang and they just wander until they feel like they've reached the end of their pilgrimage. That's a really cool idea. I like that. Yeah, a lot of classes would work as Farlang worshipers. And if you want to, as the DM and the creator of your own homebrew world, you can like add little things and be like, you know, you're a wizard who worships Farlang. So a lot of wizards who worship Farlang would be very, very inclined to take 
earth spells and they would want to be able to manipulate the earth and call up creatures of the earth and that kind of thing. Oh, you're a monk of Farlang. A lot of monks of Farlang in my world, they are all about giving away their possessions. So maybe that's something that that would be something you would want to think about. You can give ideas depending on what class they are to each of the players. But yeah, you're right. It could be a whole it doesn't have to be four clerics of Farlang going on a journey. Right. So the next god that we're going to talk about is Garl Glittergold. And Garl Glittergold, like Farlang, started in first edition and goes all the way up into the present. So Garl's titles are the Joker, the Watchful Protector, the Priceless Gem, and the Sparkling Wit. His home plane is the Twin Paradises of Bytopia. His power level is greater. His alignment is neutral good. His portfolios include protection, humor, trickery, gem cutting, and smithing. His domains include community, craft, creation, gnome, good, protection, and of course trickery. And his superiority is none. There is nobody that controls him. To describe Garl, he is depicted as a handsome, golden-skinned gnome with sparkling gemstones for eyes. He wears a flowing silk cloak and usually a substantial amount of gold decoration. Garl, as a god of luck and trickery, leads the gnomish pantheon. He is the archenemy of the kobolds and their patron deity, Kurtolmak. Garl, as a friendly, even though he's a god of trickery, he is on good terms with many gods. His enemies, however, include Kurtolmak, Erdlin, Gelf, Grumsh, and the other orc gods, kobold gods, and goblin gods. Garl lives in the gnomish realm of the Golden Hills on the plain of Bytopia. The Golden Hills are set on seven hills, one for each of the deities who dwell there. And the whole realm glows with a golden hue, which makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Garl's hill is known as Glitterhome, but he prefers to wander throughout the realm, often in disguise, once again playing into the whole trickery element of his portfolio. As far as Garl's dogma, Garl teaches that a sense of humor is an important thing for anyone to cultivate, regardless of whatever hardships they have had in their life. The inhabitants of a community ought to cooperate for the greater good. The greater good. (laughs) Pranks are a sacrament. Authority figures shouldn't take themselves too seriously. The tales and jokes of the gnomish people should be preserved, but change should not be feared. Garl Glittergold is one of the most popular of the gnomish deities and honored in one way or another by nearly all gnomes. So basically all gnomes worship him in one way or another. As far as his clergy, Garl's clerics wear war helms and golden belts. On ceremonial occasions, their helms and armor are plated with gold as well. This all makes a lot of sense with the fact that he is Garl Glittergold. Yeah, it <laughs> totally makes sense. Novice priests are known as the uncut, while full priests are called jewels. The ranks in Garl's hierarchy are, in ascending order, the Amethyst, Topaz, Opal, Jacinth, Diamond, Emerald, Ruby, and Sapphire Priests. High Priestesses are called Star Rubies, while Male High Priests are called Star Sapphires. Specialty Priests are called Glitter Brights. So this very much is a gnomish thing. <laughs> All these goofy names, but it makes a lot of sense. Because Little he's, gnome children's play with light very brights. obsessed with gems. I love the fact that the novices are called uncut. Like, it's just, that's so cool to me, knowing that, like, diamonds have to be cut into what they look like. And yeah. the fact that, like, novice priests aren't trained enough or haven't experienced enough, they're just considered uncut. It's like the more you experience, the more you learn, the more you're getting refined, and the more you're getting cut into the shape you're supposed to be. That's so cool to me. 
Priests of the Sparkling Wit serve as crafters, teachers, goldsmiths, miners, entertainers, mediators, counselors, and protectors. And they defend the community against any outside threats, often with their axes, because that, after all, is Garl Glittergold's favorite weapon. Uh, temples to the priceless gem are unassuming and often hidden. They are normally worked caves just beneath the surface in the heart of the gnomish community. I love that. Like, they're mines, basically, that gnomes just work in to get gems from the earth. Yeah, that's really cool. They are usually circular with a domed ceiling divided into four quadrants. The walls and ceilings decorated in gold leaf and studded with gold nuggets when this can be afforded. Comedians, illusionists, and other entertainers use the space to bring joy and laughter to the faithful. Priests there are usually glad to help traveling gnomes in need. I feel like they're like the ultimate stand-up comedy place. Like yeah, that, right. <laughs> that kind of is what the temples remind me of. <laughs> That's really like cool. you're walking past a Garl Glitical temple and there's those really frustrating people outside that are trying to hand you pamphlets like, come to comedy <laughs> night, like get yeah. away from me. <laughs> but these are ones you actually want to go to because yeah. most of the people are funny. Or you're just like, ah, they're all gnome jokes. <laughs> oh, poor gnomes. Hashtag gnome lives matter. Come on, man. All right. There are many ceremonies in honor to Garl, and most of them are flashy and full of illusion and also mystery at the same time. They extol the gnomish virtues such as cleverness and craftsmanship. And during the communion of laughter, which is also really, really cool, the faithful are expected to sacrifice a bit of gold or gold dust to the church who use it for the good of the community. That's really cool. Prayers to Garl are typically composed in call and response style, with the priest asking a riddle and the flock calling out the answer. I just, just imagine they're all knock-knock awesome. jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should totally, in your world, create priests that do knock-knock jokes as like they're... they're hey, oh, would you gosh. all bow your heads and fold your hands with me? Knock-knock. <laughs> That's so, that's so perfect. <laughs> Boo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, that's awesome. He's funny to even talk about. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, and so worship services are held on the 13th of each month in a holiday known as the Communion of Laughter. And lasting the whole day, the Communion of Laughter includes quiet contemplation, prayer, a.k.a. knock-knock jokes, communal <laughs> eating, dancing, storytelling, and joke-telling contests, which are not knock-knock jokes. I almost feel like worshippers of Gar Glitter Gold are kind of those annoying people that it's just like, dude, you can never take any conversation seriously. <laughs> I just imagine like people walk up to somebody's house and they're just like, and they're like, who's there? And they're like, it's me. Where's the punchline, man? I can't let you tell, you tell me the punchlines. <laughs> that would that would be so bad to live in a gnomish community, but so fun at the same time. So there are some myths and legends about Garl Glittergold. The first is called the birth of the gods. And so the gnomish gods were born as gems or veins of precious metal in the heart of the world, some say. Subterranean waters slowly eroded the earth around them until they became free. I like that a lot because even as Named Garl Glittergold calls back to his love of gems and gold and shiny things and glitter, of course. But in their essence, this legend says that, well, part of that is because the gnome gods were at one time precious 
metals and gems themselves. Yeah, I like that. And the, even the creation of the gnomes goes along that same sort of vein, no pun intended, but totally intended. <laughs> but totally intended. Uh, yeah, totally intended. While most of the gnomes imagine the multiverse as like a steady state model with no beginning or end, there does exist a myth of the ever-curious Garl Glittergold descending into a limestone cave system and being alerted to the presence of a hidden cavern by his intelligent axe, Arumdina. Using his magic to enter the cavern, Garl discovered it was covered wall to ceiling with brilliant gems. Picking some of those gems out of the wall and breathing on them, tiny forms within the gems were set free, becoming the first gnomes. Some believe that the Smurf Neblin came from rubies, the rock gnomes from diamonds, the forest gnomes from emeralds. In other versions of the myth, a handful of tiny forms are blown into the air by a sudden upcurrent, and they become the ancestors of some minor fairy folk. Usually the first thing Garl does after setting the gnomes free is tell, of course, a hilarious joke. Probably the first knock-knock joke ever told, Probably. I would imagine. Probably, because <laughs> he knocked on the cavern before exactly. he did, right? Exactly. Yeah. I love that idea because I just imagine that gnomes now call themselves, like for terms of endearment, like when they're married, they're just like, you're my precious emerald, like whatever it is, like yeah, you're my right. precious gem, like or that gnome parents call their children precious gems or whatever. Yeah. Because they believe that they came from them. Yeah, and maybe almost naming their children after a gem is one of the highest honors that they can give them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be really cool to add in. And so we have a couple of plot hooks for you for Garl Glitter Gold. And the first one kind of plays off of one of the priest sects that are within Garl's priesthood. And so Garl's priests of the Sparkling Wit are usually jokesters and rather carefree. But on one night, there was a raid on their homeland by a group of kobolds. So these sparkling wit are the ones that are sworn to protect the community around them. And so they killed a few families on the outskirts of the town, and the priests want you, as a group, to sneak into a temple of Kurtulmak, the god of the kobolds, and desecrate everything in it. They find this as a hilarious revenge, and only then will they laugh again. So it's almost like they've taken a vow of no laughter until there is revenge on this thing. And they want to be able to scry you while you're in there, and watch what you are doing so that they can regain their sense of laughter again. The next one is called The Lost Crown of Girl, and this is something that I thought would be a cool dungeon crawl uh, through a ruined temple of Girl. And so the crown of Girl is said to have once belonged to Girl himself, and it is said to be somewhere under the temple in this ruined temple. And so the crown is adorned with every gem that has ever been in existence. The twist is that goblins have dug tunnels into this underground temple and have stolen the crown for their king. And so this would be a great dungeon crawl to go into this underground temple, find tunnels that have been burrowed through the walls, and then you have to reclaim this crown of Garl for gnome kind. And that'd be great for if you have one or more gnomes in your party. That would be a lot of fun because then you're running up against one of the most hated races by the gnomes, the goblins. That's a really good twist on there. I didn't add it in because I thought it'd be really great for anybody who wanted to take this as an adventure hook and make this happen. But what do you do when you get that crown of Garl? Is there any magical properties that this mm. crown has that when a gnome kind, perhaps a worshiper of Garl puts it on that they gain some sort of ability? Yeah, whether it's the ability to create more gnomes by yep. touching other gems Ooh. because they have all of the gnomes in there. That would be really powerful, but that would be sweet. When you find other gems, you can create 
create gnomes? Does it matter what size the gems are? Like if you touch like a little diamond, would it create a little tiny gnome in your it's, hand? It's, con- it's congruent with the size of the gem. <laughs> so it's uh, not super powerful. No. You just create little tiny pet tiny gnomes. gnomes. <laughs> it just reminds me of that Adventure Time episode that, Chris, you probably have never seen, but where they have the little guys in the bag, and it's awesome, and we talked yep. about it on the Adventure Time episode, which you can go listen to. <laughs> so the last adventure hook is you are an uncut, so you're a novice priest within the ranks of the Glitter Gold priests, and everyone in your cohort thinks it would be funny, and it's almost as if it was like a ritual of passage to gain respect from them, to prank the star rubies and the star sapphires, <laughs> the highest of the high, because like we said earlier, they shouldn't take themselves too seriously. They should be open to pranks and things like that. But the only twist is the star rubies and the star sapphires have seen it all. And so they kind of walk in and they see these pranks and it's almost like an unwritten rule within them that it's like, unless it's something new, they're probably not going to laugh at it. And the only way that you're going to gain respect as an uncut within the glitter gold priests is to catch the star rubies and the star sapphires in the act of laughing because of your prank. I think that would be really fun to watch your players come up with a really cool prank to pull on some gnomish priests. This entire time that we've been talking about Garl and every time we've said Star Sapphire, I'm just like, what is that making me think of? And it's a villain in the DC universe. And that's why I was just like, what? Star Sapphire? That sounds so familiar. I've also been thinking that there was Ruby and Sapphire version of Pokemon and that these are like the, these (laughs) are the ones where they move into outer space Pokemon and start doing Star Sapphire and Star Ruby. But, you know, (laughs) we each have our different things we think about. So lastly, I'm going to be talking about one of the gods that I have created for my world, Cher Arye. And so Cher Arye is the god of the Leonins. His titles are the Jungle King, the Courageous One, and the Lord of Leonins. His home plane is, because it is tied back to my world, Avana, which is my world's heaven, and he lives on Mount Beirul. Chris, you visited there. Or Kruor did. Well, I didn't. Kruor did, yes. (laughs) His power level is greater. His alignment is lawful good. His portfolio is creation, Leonins, Jaguarriors, Pantherans, animals, strength, and wilderness. His domains are animal, bestial, courage, law, protection, and strength, and he has no superior. And so Sher Arye was one of the creators of Atos. His handiwork is shown in the vast jungles of Atos and the great golden plains of Round Run. Sher Arye also created the beasts of the jungles and of the fields. And so when Sher Arye saw that the gods Pelor and Kord and a the creators of mankind and all the other creators such as Corellon creating the elves. He saw that they had created mortals and saw the way they worshiped their creators. Cher Arye looked to his own creation and he felt saddened. He loved the creatures that he created, but longed for his own followers who he could teach and bless. And so Cher Arye took a brave group of human explorers who found themselves at the mercy of a pack of lions and he magically brought the two groups together to create the first of the Leonins. These would be his people, his cubs, and he would forever keep watch over them. He appears as a strong and fierce Leonin. His mane is a reddish brown and his eyes glow gold. He wields a gold and ruby spear called Piercing Valor. 
As far as relationship goes, he gets along well with other gods who have created creatures and animals such as Prokhan and Obad Hai. He also has a good relationship with Kord. They spar together quite often. He has sworn enemies with another one of the gods of my world, Falgon, who is basically the evil god of beasts and hates the evil god for twisting his creation to serve his own purposes. He also opposes all member of Falgon's pantheon. He also hates Yanogu and has foiled the demon prince's plans many times. Orc deities are are also his sworn enemies. Once again, as far as his realm, he lives in the plain of Ivana on Mount Beirul because of his duties to the Council of Beirul. And if you remember the Riders of Shemesh campaign, Kruor and that group, they stood before the Council of Beirul yes, on Mount Beirul. As far as his teachings, Sher'are teaches his children that the pride always comes first. A Leonin who follows Sher'are will live their life devoted to his or her pride and will die willingly in order to save any other member of their pride. Courage and honor are also key to the teachings of Sher Arye. One does not run away from a fight. Those who follow him seek to honor their god on the battlefield. However, it is just as honorable to keep the peace, and this must always be the first thing to be sought out. He's worshipped, of course, by Leonins. Those are his primary worshippers, but he's also worshipped in my world by Jaguarians and Pantherans, which are the Jaguar and the Pantherkin. But Sher Arye has no other interest in worship from any other mortal races besides these three. There's no hierarchy for worshippers of Sher Arye and as among the clergy. All members of the pride pay homage to the god and all members of the pride are seen as equally important. There are prophets chosen by Sher Arye to speak to his people but while they are highly respected among their pride, they usually take on the nature of a servant among their people. When it comes to temples, his temples are large golden pyramids built in the center of Leonin civilizations. A pyre always burns at the top of the pyramids to symbolize the undying nature of courage and also in remembrance to those who have given their lives for their pride. These large temples are not simply centers of worship, but also where many Leonins gather to tell stories of fallen brothers who gave everything for Sher Arye and their pride. Leonins don't observe any type of calendar. However, they do observe the phases of the moons. And on nights when either of the moons, because my world has two moons, is full, Leonins will gather at the top of the temples and observe the Night of Courage. And this is one of their holy days. The night begins and ends with a unanimous roar of the entire pride. After the beginning roar, the Pride Prophet will recount stories of Leonins who have given their lives in a courageous manner to protect their pride. It's almost like that moment of Mufasa looking up into the stars and telling those stories of all of the kings that have gone before them and are now the (laughs) countless stars of the sky like that. Yeah, well, yeah, Leonins in my world, they're very, very, it almost crosses a line of worship when it comes to even ancestors in their tribes. So like they worship Sher Arye very, very much, but they also almost worship those who have died before them. And that kind of comes into play with these temples because it's not only about talking about the stories and the dogma and the lessons that Sher Arye teaches, but the lessons and the stories about those who have fallen before them. And there is very much a sense of these people who are have died before us, these leaders 
Leonans. They deserve our respect, and we recount their tales over and over and over again. Yeah, and I almost imagine in those moments there's like the retelling of the original creation story of yeah. a man and some lions coming together, and it's like this moment of anger and hatred, and these people are totally sworn enemies, and then... You know, you, you were talking earlier about peace being the thing that they should kind of go after first, that this moment of courage is a retelling of them coming together because Shirare sought peace between these two to teach their lessons. That's really cool. Yeah, I like the way that I've created the Leonians in my world. I really want to use them more, but we haven't seen them a lot in the stories that yeah. uh, we have told together in Atos. In fact, one of the only Leonians that we've ever encountered was like a complete and total reverse of what most of them are. We encountered him in the sons of bastion campaign and i don't know if you were playing with us yet chris but i remember I the other players they could not stand this guy because he was like a mercenary and he betrayed them and uh, he was the opposite of what most leonins and anyone who followed share would seek to be but that's why he was out in a town being a mercenary because he had been banished by his pride because he was not a worshiper of share so that would lead to him being very different so as far as adventure hooks for share I've come up with three, and the first one I entitled The Savage War, and so it would be the PCs come across two warring tribes, one of the Leonins who worship Sha'arie, and one of orcs who worship Grumsh. And so I like to think of this either being in uh, a region that is completely jungle or perhaps just beautiful flowing golden fields, and so you have these two tribes that are warring against each other. Maybe the PCs come right in the middle of a battle that's between these two. Maybe they come across a bunch of orcs that are running at them and they're like, oh no, it's a whole entire tribe. And then they realize behind them, there's a whole entire tribe of Leonins and they're just stuck in the middle. Right. Oh, that would be terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Especially because you don't know what's going on in that moment if that's the first time you encounter them. And so Mm -hmm. in this story, the battle would go back centuries and begin with the tale of how Sherarie and Grumsh both did battle together. And ever since that day, and that story has been passed down and down and down, these tribes continue continue to battle each other, remembering that their gods once did battle. And so I think there are many different types of alignment campaigns that you can do. You can have evil campaign, a good campaign. You can have a campaign with a bunch of different types of alignments. And so you could have it be that your PCs decide which tribe are they going to join and help out. Mm. Yeah. During this battle. And perhaps they're the ones that will push the scales over. And finally, the battle is completely won and one of the tribes is completely destroyed. And so my next adventure hook is called The Last of the Pride. And it's not so much of an adventure hook, but the idea for either an NPC or if you have a player who wants to be a PC, you could create something along these lines and help him to determine their backstory. And so it's a Leonin who has lost his entire tribe. His entire pride is gone, whether uh, that's because orcs attacked or whatever it is, his entire pride is gone. And so as a worshiper of Sher Arye, you need a pride to protect. If you don't have a pride to protect, you cannot follow the path of Sher Arye. And so whether it's a PC or an NPC, you can have this NPC who's looking for this Leonin who's looking for a new pride to protect. And if it's a PC, that's a great way to say, hey, now these PCs, these other PCs, the other the players that you are surrounded with, that is your new pride. Those are the people that you would go to the ends of the earth to even die for them. And how does your Leonin folk, how does he act in this adventure that we're playing out because of the fact that he worships Sher Arye? 
And then the last one I call the story of a past PC. And so this would be if you, the god of Cher Arie, or you created a god very much like Cher Arie in your world, and you had had a Leonin folk who had worshipped him before, uh, we've always talked about cameos and bringing back PCs of old that come up in your story because you're trying to build a lore and your players, their PCs should become part of the history. It would be a fantastic opportunity to have told a story about a past PC who was a Leonin and your PCs in your current campaign come up to this temple of Sher Arye and they hear the story of one of the past PCs who was a Leonin who worshiped Sher Arye. That would be a really cool thing to do. That would be, yeah. Doing PC throwbacks like that are always a ton of fun to watch your players be a part of. As a player, those are like my favorite moments. Just being like, oh, cool. The DM is paying homage to a PC from the past, whether it's mine or whether I'm getting to watch the other player be like, that's my character. And as a DM, it's one of my favorite moments, too, because you you light up somebody's day when you do that. Oh, yeah. Totally. So those are the gods that we are focusing on for this episode. We hope that you've enjoyed talking about Farlang and Garl Glittergold and Shi'arie. We hope that you've gathered a bunch of information that you can use within your own homebrew worlds. But before we close out this episode, we have one more segment for you. We are going to move on to the mailbag of holding. They have been asking for their mail on a daily basis. It's all they're talking about up there. That right there is the mail. Now let's talk about the mail. Can we talk about the mail, please, Mac? I'm dying to talk about the mail for you all day, okay? So welcome back to another mailbag of holding, the place where we talk about stories, ideas, and questions from you, the listeners. So Mitch, we have another email today. And who is this email from? This one is from Naboru Fox, and Naboru Fox writes in about a campaign that he wants to get started, and he, he wanted a little bit of input from us as the DMs of the DMs Block podcast. So one of the cool things about this, Chris, first off, right off the bat, is that he's been listening to our podcast, and he tells us that he has never actually been a DM. So this is going to be his first campaign, really, to start off with, which is awesome. So he has this idea, and he says, I have an idea where a sword that will be given to one of the players will be, in the lore, will bestow immortality. It has been endowed with the power by death itself. The problem that he's finding is that if he gives the sword to his players that gives them this gift slash curse of immortality, what does he do when his characters, quote unquote, die in campaign? How does he make it so there is a consequence to this because at the end of the character's natural lives, they will become a thrall of death and pretty much become death's agent. But that is a future player's problem. They will not have to encounter that in this campaign. And so he goes on to explain it a little bit more. He says, Thrallhood is seen as the overall price for the characters themselves. The sword is held by a kingdom. When a kingdom that holds the sword goes to war, it is given to a hero or a champion so they may lead troops into battle without fear and continue doing so over and over again. It would also be a great morale booster for the troops because they have someone known as the immortal warrior on their side, someone who can't ever be killed. So is there a way to punish the players mechanically for dying without them dying, or should I just have one of the NPCs keep this sword so it doesn't come into contact with the players and create this how do they die without dying problem? It's not about punishment, but there is, there should be consequences, and death is a natural consequence to the enemy was strong, it beat you, but if they don't die, what's the consequence? Because that kind of changes the way characters 
play. And that being said, if they're an immoral warrior, I think that's something that should be played out with that character is they will not fear death. But what is something that they could have done? Because player wise, if there's no challenge to the game, that kind of sucks that that as much as some players might think that'd be awesome, it won't make there be any stress or any challenge to the game. Well, what happens if every time a character, quote unquote, reaches that point where they as a character normally would die, that they become closer and closer to their eventual fate as a thrall of death? Like every time they die, maybe you have like a a meter that you as the DM have that like they just keep getting closer and closer to that eventual. They just become a thrall. Maybe as they go on, every single time they mechanically die, their appearance changes somehow. So their skin starts to rot, their skin starts to peel or fall off completely. Basically, what I'm thinking is they are becoming something that is between being alive and dead. It's something in between. They're almost becoming this undead creature in a sense. And as this continues, like there is a sense that there isn't a punishment in the sense of dead. There isn't a consequence that things are super dangerous as far as losing your life. But the more and more you become this disgusting looking undead, uh, somewhere between life and death creature, you can have them lose charisma. Like they can start to lose charisma and they might need to start hiding their faces and they might need to start wearing cloths over themselves. So they aren't seen by their soldiers because it can start to go from this point of a morale booster with their soldiers to like everybody is disgusted by them and afraid of them because of what they are looking like they're becoming deformed and i like that idea of there if you want a mechanical consequence losing charisma would absolutely be something i think that that works into that i played world of warcraft back in the day and when you die you can find your body again or whatever in the ethereal realm and come back so i I was thinking along those lines like what would happen if you were to, for all intensive purposes, die. Like if you were to roll your saves and you die and you're just laying there on the ground, but you enter the realm of the dead and it's like this purplish world or whatever where you, like the god of death holds no reins over you. He cannot keep you there and you know where the entrance is. It's just a matter of you getting there. Things move faster here than they do in the material realm. And so you just have to get back to the entrance to the realm of death and when you reach that your soul comes back into your body there's this big explosion of like this purplish blackish energy you hear this loud scream and cry as if like the god of death is angry because he couldn't keep you here and i wonder what sort of morale boost that would give to your army and to the players around you when it's like all of a sudden the enemy thinks they've killed this immortal warrior. They think they've felled this great foe who can't do anything against them any longer. This immortal warrior, what a joke. This thing was a piece of cake. And then he comes back and there's this huge explosion of black and purple and this loud scream as if a god is angry that you've escaped death and you stand back up and everybody's blown back. Like what kind of morale boost would happen to both your your army that's around you and how demoralizing would that be to the group? around them yeah to the enemies that are around them and so maybe it's like i mean thrallhood is pretty scary in and of itself like that's a pretty terrible consequence to have to thrallhood man (laughs) like that's what that's what (laughs) happens but during that time 
you're the immortal warrior. I would be like, no, you're, you're immortal, man. Like that's, that's what happens depending on how far away or, you know, how you would work that otherworldly stuff out. Like the battle might be over. The enemy might've won because you couldn't come back in time. But if you can come back in time and it just totally changes the way the battle goes, I think that could be absolutely sc- or terrifying to the enemy and absolutely morale boosting for your, your group that's with you. Yeah. I also, like you said, Thrallhood is so scary. That's why I said like, it'd be sweet if they, get closer and closer to becoming yeah. the straw of death. Maybe every single time that they die and they become more of a thrall of death, they start to lose their free will. Yeah. And maybe they are compelled by death, whether it's the God of death or whatever to do things that they wouldn't want to do. And you could have that happen in a number of ways. You can have that happen in a way that if you are, you as the DM are like, Oh, the God of death would want this. You can have them roll a wisdom save as they hear a voice in their head, kill this man, attack this man, bring him to me, allow him to come to my gates. And so if they save against the will save, they're able to fight it off. But if they're not, it's like they're taking it over. They're charmed and they're they're brought to they need to kill this other person who they wouldn't normally want to. Or you can just have it in the sense of they go to bed one night and they wake up and they're standing over a pile of dead people because mm-hmm. they were controlled and they were brought closer to this thrallhood. They're becoming a mindless servant of death. Yeah, I was gonna say that that seems really terrifying. And maybe the consequence is eventually maybe the god of death is figuring out a way to bring this person back to the realm of the dead. And so they're yeah. only immortal for a short, a long period of time, but they're only, it's, it's, it's numbered. So you could have this, you know, you have this person that just goes gung ho into battle thinking that there's no real repercussions for being the immortal warrior. And every time they die, the God of death just takes them back a little bit more through that mind control to the point where their body no longer has a soul and the God of death has won and has that person's soul. And now it's just a mindless person just wandering around the world doing whatever the God of death wants. I think that's, that's a terrifying reality that people would come up against. Like I am no longer in control of this NPC. My PC character has died for all intents and purposes because I can't play them anymore. But now they're just wandering the world with this sword that makes them immortal. Like, that's terrifying. Especially if these characters are good characters, like lawful, good, neutral, good, chaotic, good. And then they're being made to do these messed up evil things. Even if they're neutral characters, like, even if they're even if they're evil characters to be controlled to the point where they didn't get to choose to do this or that. Like, that is something that is, especially for a good character, though, like, that brings about such role-playing consequences. My last thought with this was with the idea of them becoming closer and closer to death physically and, like, losing their skin and everything like that was I had this idea, too, that maybe as they come closer to the door of I am a, a creature that is the living dead, the undead, and I'm no longer in the world of the living, like they're becoming outcast to the world of the living. It would be really cool if they start to forget the language of the living. And so like the people who are like, they're members of their army. Like they start to like lose memory of what they're saying. And they're only able to pick up certain things to the point where eventually they completely can't understand them anymore. But along the way, they start to learn the language of the dead. So like zombies, which normally sound like, guttural like groaning like like somewhat along the way they start to understand they're losing the understanding of the language of the living but they're starting to be able to converse 
with zombies and with skeletons and with all these undead creatures who before when they were just living living mortal men it just sounded like a guttural language that not not even a language i think that would be another cool way to have this be a role-playing opportunity yeah or in that moment even you know the god of death starts speaking and you hear the language of this god that's just like this you know whispering creepy voice that's just like well that's not them what the heck's going on like i think both of those are just fantastic being able to converse with zombies that's like everybody in the walking dead's dream i bet like (laughs) go away from me please i mean you no harm okay (laughs) just walk away (laughs) right yeah like they could start being able to command the zombies because they can hear them it puts a lot darker of a look on this sword that is seen in a in a way it, it i mean this this is seen as like almost like the one ring, right? Like it's a power that it's great, but if you put it in the right hands, it can be it can be a a good weapon, but really it's not. Like it I will would, it will destroy that person. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so thank you so much, Naboru Fox. We really, really appreciate that email, and we hope that our answers have brought to light some ideas that you can implement in your campaign. And if you are not Naboru Fox, we hope that today you have been given a great idea for a artifact in your world. So that's what we have for you for this episode of the Dungeon Master's Block. We hope that you have enjoyed talking about the gods that we've presented for you today. We hope that you've enjoyed the mailbag of holding and that you were able to glean a little bit of information from that. If you would like to share a story with us, I know both Mitch and I would love to hear your your stories. And if you want to share with us a story that is longer than Twitter, uh, you can send it to us at our email at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. We would love to read over those and, you know, give you feedback and see, you know, just enjoy the moments that you had with you. You can also find us on iTunes. Go and leave us a five-star review. Every review just helps people know, hey, this podcast is actually worth listening to. So we would much appreciate it if you would go over there, leave us a five-star review, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. And you can also find us on Podcast Addict and Stitcher and various other Android podcasting apps as well. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. You can like our Facebook page. Both of those places have updates about the show, D&D information, and memes. This week, we have another Patreon shout-out for a very special member. And this week's shout-out goes to... David Beavers. Beavers. Kind of sounds like a car if you say it really fun and fast. <laughs> But thank you so much, David. He, David is a dreaded gold dragon. So fear him as he's hovering around the, the forums and around the Twitter sphere. Give him a shout out as well from you, our lovely listeners. Thanks, David. So that's all the time we have for you here at the Dungeon Masters Block, the place where we come to talk about the most important person in the game, the Dungeon Master, the only person capable of playing and creating gods, killing and creating characters. <laughs> and lowering and hiring the egos of all of the other players at the table. Have a good night, everyone. Keep on dungeon mastering. Goodbye.